We're in a key turning point in a certain sense where Christ makes a number of claims that make his death inevitable in a certain sense. So we'll begin at verse 31 reading through. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Why do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you do not know Him. I know Him. If I were to say that I did not know Him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have, seen Abra- have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Let us pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, please open up your words now so that we understand. We want to be those who believe and abide in Christ, and we want to be those who receive your word, not 
as these listeners did, but as true children of God, children of Abraham, children who have been set free by the Son. So set us free, we pray. Amen. Well, in verse 30, we're told that many believed in Jesus. And then in verse 31, there's a reaffirmation of that because Jesus speaks to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, here's where it gets a little bit complicated because we're told that people believe in him and yet Jesus appears to not take at face value their faith. And he reminds them the nature of true saving faith is not merely intellectual assent to who Jesus could be, not even being impressed with his mighty works. But Jesus actually talks about the nature of true faith in terms of perseverance, that those who abide in him are those who have true faith. I uh, sent off uh, a book to the publisher, and I talked about Faith Church in the preface. I'm going to tell you what I said about you. It's mostly good. I am deeply thankful for the faithfulness of God's servants in my own church where I have been privileged to minister for 15 years. During this time, some have drifted and returned. Some have drifted and sadly, not yet returned. Some are apparently drifting. Others may yet drift. And many are gloriously growing in grace as they walk towards glory. That's the truth. Uh, Whether we like it or not, there are people who have abandoned God's church. There are some who are playing with fire, for sure. There are some who have seen the error of their ways and they are walking again with the Lord and they have been gloriously restored. There are some who are sitting here and they may, in the future, if they're not careful, uh, drift. Who knows how far? And that's just the reality of the church. That's the reality of humans. It's the reality of listeners. And uh, we can deny that or we can face it. And Christ faces harsh realities with these listeners They are not saying we don't believe in you. They're saying we believe in you, and yet he still is trying to get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter shows us that these people are very far away from true faith. In fact, so far away from true faith are they that their father is the devil. Now, We shouldn't be surprised at this. In chapter 2, many believed in Jesus, but he did not believe or entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. In chapter 6, there were many who believed in him, wanted to make him king, but then Christ kept on preaching and they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And they walked away. And Jesus had to say to his disciples, are you too going to abandon me? So John is clearly writing a gospel to an original audience that I think is struggling with whether they want to live out the Christian life in the midst of doubt, persecution, and so on. And he's trying to convince them that Jesus really is worth following. And here you see the difference between true faith and false faith. Now, 
Notice what Jesus says after, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Because true disciples know the truth and the truth sets them free. This is the main issue of life in this world in terms of true oppression and bondage. It's something that, dare I say, the world would be horrified at even the suggestion that the real problem in this world is not necessarily societal oppression, political oppression, even modern day or ancient slavery, however grotesque and evil it was. And it was, in fact, long before what is popularly known as the sort of North Atlantic slave trade. There was sophisticated slave trading going on in Africa, in East Africa, not just West Africa. More slaves went out to uh, what is today the Middle East from Africa than ever went out to the West. And there was slavery hundreds of years before that, thousands of years before that. In Rome at the time of when this was written, there were roughly... uh, by the estimates of some scholars, up to 200 million slaves in some form or another. And Jesus is actually conscious of that. He's not unaware of that, and yet he's concerned with something much more fundamental than the oppression of people in slave systems. He is concerned about sin. You see this in verse 34. Jesus answered them because they are claiming they've never been enslaved to anyone, which is a false claim, and we'll see that they make all sorts of false claims because they're liars. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's the fundamental problem of humanity. It's the only way you can make sense of Philemon and the actions of Paul and what he suggests regarding Onesimus is that you can be a slave and yet be free, and you can be free and yet be a slave. And you are a true slave when you are a slave to your sin. And there is only one person who can set you free. The law cannot set you free. Good religion in a certain sense, or bad religion for sure, but even good religion cannot set you free. In fact, true freedom is not linked to Doctrine specifically, but actually to a person. If the Son, verse 36, sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, he has to extrapolate upon this in terms of true freedom. And this is really what this discourse is about. Who is truly free? And Jesus is trying to tell these religious people that they are in bondage. They are in bondage to their father's desires. That they are following the pattern of their father, who turns out to be the devil. That's the basic message. My mother came with me uh, to church this morning at nine, and she came in the car, and she says, Mark, uh, what is the sermon about this morning? I says, well, uh, my dear mother, let me tell you. It is about how Jesus sets us free, and how if we do not receive this freedom from Christ, we'll be in bondage. And she says, well, that's very simple. Is there anything more? Oh, we've got a scholar on our hands, do we? A theologian. Well, I says, I'll fill in the blanks, but that is the basic message. And it's a message that I think we actually probably forget a little too 
often for my liking and, dare I say, also God's. Now notice they claim Abraham as their father in verse 39. But he's saying, listen, if Abraham was your father, you would be like Abraham. You would do the works that Abraham did. But you cannot be children of Abraham because you're trying to kill me. And he says a little bit later on, Abraham loved me. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham was for me and you're against me. So how can you be children of Abraham? And they even say, we have one father, even God. And Christ says, well, listen, not only are you not children of Abraham in the spiritual sense, you're not even children of God, because if you were children of God, you would also recognize who I am. In fact, in verse 44, he says something that is really quite striking, don't you think? You are of your father, the devil. Imagine them hearing this. Just imagine what it's like to be involved in a theological discussion and the person ramps it up. You ever been in a discussion where you're having a debate and the person just escalates it? Christ is escalating matters right now. He is saying, you're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. Two things characterize the devil in this context. He is a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil can only lie, because that's who he is. And when you lie, you harm people, and harming people is a form of murder. You may not actually murder someone and still be a murderer, because you're seeking to harm other people. Now, this is what Satan gives birth to, and there are two types of people in this world. Despite what you might think, there are two types of people in this world. There are people who are children of God, who have God as their father. There are people who are children of the devil, and he is their father. And you will necessarily reflect your father. This happened with Cain. Why do we read Genesis 4? Is it just there, or was there a purpose? Well, you'll notice something interesting about Cain. In fact, just let me remind you that Cain was, like the serpent, a liar. The devil says to Adam and Eve, you will not surely die. He lied. What does Cain say? Well, God speaks to him and says, where is Abel your brother? And he says, how do I know? Am I my brother's keeper? I just murdered him, mind you, but am I my brother's Do I know where my brother is? I don't know where my brother is. He's a liar. And what had he just done in verse 8, right before that, as the serpent sought to murder Adam and Eve and bring destruction upon all of humanity, he rose up in the field and he struck down his brother Abel. He was a murderer. And it's interesting to me that in chapter 3, the serpent is what? He's cursed above all livestock. He will crawl upon his belly all the days of his life. There's a curse upon the serpent but in Genesis chapter 4, verse 11, God curses Cain. He is a murderer. He is a liar. He is cursed. He is like his father, the devil. You go all the way into the New Testament, we could look at a lot of other examples from Isaiah, Ezekiel, and other places in the Psalms. But in the New Testament, Jesus is tempted. And the devil takes Jesus to Jerusalem and sets him upon the pinnacle of the temple. 
and says to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from there. This is an attempted murder, by the way. But then Jesus resists the devil's temptation and goes and preaches. And it doesn't end up well. You can read for yourself in Luke chapter 4. But then at the end of his sermon, we're told that his listeners rose up. It's the same language where Cain rose up against Abel. They rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill upon which their town was built. Same chapter as when the devil brought Jesus to the top of the temple so that they could do what? Throw him off the cliff. What did the devil just said? Cast yourself down. What are they doing? Their father's desires. They are murderers. They are liars. They are cursed. All lies originate from the evil one. And you are living in a world where people are always lying to you because what are they doing? Carrying out their father's desires. You're being lied to constantly. You're being lied to by politicians. You're being lied to even by friends. You're being lied to in society in all manner of ways. So what do you do? Do you put up the white flag? Do you just accept the reality of the situation? No. You know the truth. You receive the truth. And the truth sets you free from the despair of the lies that continue And lying is harmful. Make no mistake. It is an attack upon someone else because of hatred. When somebody lies to you, they hate you. I got an email this morning actually from a friend and the mother of the daughter calls her daughter by the daughter's new name because the daughter thinks she's a boy. And so the mother is calling her own daughter by a male name. I think it's a male name. It's so confusing. I've never heard of it before. And I said, listen, I'm praying for you, but it's clear your mother, your, your, the, her mother hates her. She is lying to her. That's what happens in this world. This world in which we're living, it is a form of hatred when you lie. And it's also a form of murder because murder is hating in the end. Now, Jesus actually tells them that for all of their wickedness, they cannot condemn him. In verse 46, he says, listen, which one of you convicts me of sin? I'm convicting you of sin, but which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Because they cannot believe him. He actually makes that point in verse 45. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Now the final nail in the coffin seems to happen in verses 48 and onwards. And it really is quite astounding because the Jews then lie. See verse 48? They've already admitted that he is the son of Mary and Joseph, whom they know to be Jews. But then they say, are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They lie. They don't just make a mildly false allegation. They make a wildly false allegation because they are liars. But you see, Jesus doesn't try to calm things down. 
After saying that God will glorify him, he says in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Can you think of a bigger claim than this in terms of the empirical evidence of this world? Think about the empirical evidence of this world. Everyone dies. So imagine saying something that goes utterly contrary to everything that you observe with your eyes. He's not just saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's a sort of propositional truth that maybe we could spiritualize away. He's actually saying to these people, if you believe in me, you will never see death. That's a significant claim. How can he make this claim? Well, you see the way which it unfolds. Because as he says those words, the Jews say, now we know you have a demon. Verse 52. They say, Abraham died as the prophets did, and yet you're saying to us, anyone who believes in you will never see death. And so they ask a question, are you greater than Abraham? Well, that's an interesting question because Abraham was the greatest. He's the father of the faithful. He is the first patriarch. Are you really greater than Abraham? And Jesus has the effrontery to say to them in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. Abraham looked forward to me. You claim to be children of Abraham, yet you have the opposite affections that Abraham possessed. Abraham loved me, looked forward to seeing me. You hate me, you want to kill me. How can you be children of Abraham when you're utterly unlike Abraham? So he's telling the Jews that they are the opposite of who they claim to be. But then they say, well, hang on now. You're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham who died a long, long time ago. And here you really have to understand that when John writes in the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a statement of Christ's divinity, but it's a statement after the fact that John is saying this is who he is. But here is, I think, probably the grandest statement that has ever been uttered by anyone ever in the world. Any claim that's ever been made, no one has ever made this claim. Before Abraham was, not only was I going to be, but before Abraham was, I have always been and I will always be. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the one who stretched out the heavens. I am the one who spoke to Job. I am the one who can number the stars. I am the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. I am the one who fills the earth. I am the one who sustains the earth. I am the one who causes the galaxies and the universe and everything that is known to be upheld. I am that one before Abraham ever came into the existence. I simply am. Now, nobody says that. No Jew would ever, ever dream of saying that. Do you understand? Nobody says that. Unless it's true. You would have to be clinically insane as a Jewish person in the first century to claim these words of yourself. Unless they were true. 
So when he says you will never see death, in a mere sense, that's child's play compared to what he says in verse 58. Because if he is God, he can say whatever he wants. And so what do they do? They pick up stones to stone the rock of ages. And of course are unsuccessful. Now, as I said, the basic point of the sermon is this is about true freedom. What does it mean to be free in Christ? He is trying to tell them they are in bondage to their sin, that they carry out their father's desires, that they are slaves. And he is saying, I have the ability to set people free. I was reading a speech from Nelson Mandela, and it discusses the issue of freedom. And he said, during my lifetime, I've dedicated myself to the struggle of the African people. I've fought against white domination, and I've fought against black domination. I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons can live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. So far, so good. It is an ideal which I hope to live for and achieve, but if needs be, it is an ideal for which I'm prepared to die. In other words, Nelson Mandela is saying, I'm prepared to die so that we might have a free and democratic society. Now, what is the difference between Jesus dying for freedom and Nelson Mandela dying for freedom? Well, there's two fundamental differences. There's more. But the first is this. Jesus has just said, before Abraham was, I am. We are talking about God. We are talking about the eternal, omnipotent, unchangeable God who is blessed forever, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, who inhabits the places of eternity. And He comes to earth as a servant freely and willingly and lays down His life as God incarnate. You can die for any cause you want, and it may do some temporal good for a period of time, but you are not God coming to die. And here's the second fundamental difference. The death of Christ confronts us with the fact that we are sinners. The world likes the idea of the noble martyr who lays down their life for some noble cause but they do not want to deal with the fact that we are all sinners and we all need the same Savior because of our sins. And so Christ confronts you not only with the fact that God has come in the flesh, but that He has come in the flesh because you in your flesh have rebelled against Him and you need a Savior. Now, what is our freedom then? What is this freedom that Christ speaks of? Well, it's freedom from the guilt of your sins. When you sin, you actually can go to God and you can have a clear conscience as soon as you confess your sins. That's an unbelievable thing. People walk around with so much guilt today. They walk around with guilt because of things they've done decades ago. And it's a burden upon their back that they don't know what to do with. You can go to God every time you sin. You can look back on the myriad of sins you've committed and know that there's no guilt. There's no condemnation. You are free from God's wrath. You don't even need to fear the future because God's wrath has passed over you and fallen upon Christ. You are free from this present evil world. 
of being one of its children. You are free from bondage to Satan. You are free from the dominion of sin. So not only is the guilt of sin taken away, even the power of sin that enslaves so many is taken away. That you actually get to live for God instead of against God. You are free from the evil of afflictions. That nothing can happen to you in this world that you cannot say, this is working together for my good. Nothing. There's no affliction that can happen to you and you can say, this is outside of God's purpose and control. That's how free you are. And you are free from the sting of death. You are free from the victory of the grave. Let me ask you this. Is there a sense in which you look forward to death? Now that's different than saying you want to die. I don't want to die. You should see how many vitamins I took this morning. Even my mom is like, wow. And she's old. <laughs> vitamins. Drops. Ordered a nice little thing for my eyes, these bean bags, you warm them up, put them on your eyes, oh, it feels good, you put it after a long day, look in the computer screen, you know. I don't want to die. I'm taking measures to prolong my ministry as long as God will enable me. It's horrible looking for another pastor. A lot of work. But I've got to tell you something else. There are days when I cannot wait cannot wait to see the fruit of my salvation and the glory of what has been promised and the sight of the face of Jesus Christ so that as I behold the glory of God, it shines to me in a way that I cannot understand this side of glory where I get to see all of the redeemed worshiping, not just see Christ, but see everyone He has ushered into His presence If you're a true believer and you really have faith, there's a sense in which you are so free that you can actually look forward to death rather than run from it as the world does. They're terrified of it. And they do everything they can to avoid talking about it and the reality of it. The Christians, while we don't go around committing suicide on purpose because of some sort of wrong belief in the afterlife, we do have a feeling of wanting to be with God. That's true freedom where the sting of death has been removed. True freedom is having access to God any time of the day, waking up in the middle of the night and being able to just pray to Him. True freedom is where you are free from the commandments of men where you can say we must obey God rather than men because God alone is Lord of the conscience. And you can be free to not be ashamed of the gospel in this world where there is so much shame. But you know what else you can be free from? And I didn't mention this earlier and I realized how it still grips me to some extent. You can be free from the fear of man. May I make a small confession to you? There are sometimes things I'm afraid to say in one sight compared to the other. You know that? I know it's disappointing to some of you. But there are some people I go, if I say that, they're going to be upset. And I'm probably not 
totally renowned for being a pansy. I mean, I'm not saying I'm Paul Washer, but but I'm amazed at how there's still aspects of people's beliefs where I'm like, this is going to upset them. I probably shouldn't. And so I go harder on one site than the other based on who's there. That's true. That's a little confession. I've got to get over that. Because I'm still not doing people any good if they need to hear it. Just as Christ wouldn't have done these people any good if he had just assured them, oh, that's so wonderful that you believe. Free from what? When Christ sets you free, what are you free from? The answer is absolutely everything. You are free from anything and everything that could possibly bring you into any type of bondage. You are free to love Him, to love your biggest enemy. You are free to fear nothing in this world, including death. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed because He has conquered the sin and the devil and death itself. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and for what Christ has offered us. And it is a great deal more than we can even fathom. And so we thank You that our freedom is total and not partial. That it sets us free. And so we ask that we will live as though that were true. Keep us from all sorts of bondage, especially the bondage of our sin. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.